free will, the law of attraction, and does Jesus save aliens? All that and more on this episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He's got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. The questions on Ask Science Mike have gotten dude heavy once again, so this is a call for all you ladies out there. Let's prove that science isn't just for the boys. Send your questions in. I also want to thank all of the patrons this week who have contributed to the program and helped keep it going. I appreciate it, and also thanks to everyone who's rated the show on iTunes. It really does help. Let's get it started. Hey Science Mike, it's Keith from Orlando. My question for you today is do you believe in aliens? And if so, do you believe in an alien Jesus? Because if Jesus was here as a human on earth, doesn't that provide evidence to say we're the only intelligent life form in the universe? I can't wait to hear your response. I love the show and keep up the good work. Thanks. This is exactly the kind of question I was hoping for when I started Ask Science Mike. Uh, it has legitimate science content, it has interesting spirituality content, and it's very whimsical. <laughs> so this has got to be one of my favorite questions that's been on the program so far. Uh, great question. Rapid fire answers. Do I believe in aliens? Yes. If so, do I believe in an alien Jesus? I don't have enough data to make that call. If Jesus was on earth, doesn't that prove that humans are the only intelligent life? No. Okay, here's some rationale. First of all, life is probably common. And I get that idea from a rumination called the Drake Equation. And it's a, it's an attempt to quantify how many intelligent uh, civilizations there may be in the galaxy or in the universe. And um, there's a lot of really unknown variables in that equation that could be orders of magnitude off. Um so we can't really use it usefully yet, but it does give us ways to think about life. For example, how many stars are out there? How long do stars take to form? How many of those stars have planets? How many of those planets are habitable, right? How likely is life to emerge on a planet? All these, these ideas. And what we're learning in astronomy these days is planets are really, 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 really common. They uh, outnumber stars significantly. Planetary systems are common. Most stars have planets. Most stars have more than one planet. So some of those planets are going to be Earth-like. Well, if that's the case, where is everybody? <laughs> the night sky is awfully quiet. I haven't seen any spaceships recently, at least other than the ones that we send out to other planets. So where is everybody? Well, there's, a, there's an idea in astronomy uh, called the Fermi Paradox, and that is... If there are so many stars and so many planets, why isn't the galaxy rife with life? And uh, I'm going to link a blog. Actually, my favorite blog I've probably ever read by anybody is by a blog called Wait But Why, and it's on the Fermi Paradox. And uh, I really encourage you to go to AskScienceMike.com and click that link and read all about it. But essentially, uh, one of the ideas is that life may be very common, 
but it might not be that common that multicellular life is common. That seems to be one of the most unlikely events in evolution that actually happened was the jump from single-celled to multicellular life. And then from there, intelligence of our type is not necessarily an inevitable consequence. Uh, now, of course, that's all thinking very naturalistically. Uh, most Christians who believe in evolution would be theistic evolutionists, and they would believe that evolution was guided by God in some way. So that's going to throw off the math. But regardless, if God made other intelligent life, we haven't heard from them yet in that paradigm, okay? So I'm very comfortable saying life is probably out there in a naturalistic worldview or even in a theistic evolution worldview. A biogenesis, although we don't fully understand it, the process by which life emerged, which is different and distinct from evolution, which is the process by which the diversity of life on this planet emerged, it seems to be a plausible concept. Even in our own solar system, there are multiple bodies that have complex organic molecules, and given enough time, that chemistry can level up into self-replicating molecules, and from there, life. Yet we don't see it. So... It may be we're the only intelligent life that doesn't have to do anything with, with Jesus or not. But let's assume there is other intelligent life, and we just haven't been able to contact it because space is so vast. What is to say they would sin? Honestly, how would we know that, that alien life sinned? How could we assume they were broken or in need of salvation in any way? And I think that's an important point. We're going to explore salvation a lot in a later question and those ideas behind it. Um, but on Earth, we're the only species that requires any salvation in Christian theology. So is it so hard to imagine that on other planets there could be life that doesn't require saving? It's an interesting idea. If other species are out there and they're intelligent and they are sinful and they require salvation— they have probably never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. They have probably never heard of Earth. Uh, and so if there's a God guiding their development as well, as we assume if God made us and made the universe, God would also be aware of other alien species, we can assume he would have some plan for salvation on that planet. The interesting idea <laughs> comes if, uh, if we ever encounter another intelligent civilization, if it is... Without sin, how will it handle us? And if it is uh, also broken in the way that we are broken or broken in a completely different way, what will that say? Uh, you know, it's easy to imagine that encountering other life in the cosmos will probably be the most dramatic event in human history. It'll be a big deal. It will probably send a lot of theologians back to the drawing board which I'm cool with. I go back to the drawing board all the time with my theology. <laughs> um, so it'd be nice to see everybody else uh, have to play in that sandbox as well. So again, AskScienceMike.com. I'll have links to the Drake equation and more about the Fermi paradox. Interesting question. Yes, aliens. Don't know about an alien Jesus. We may or may not be the only intelligent life, but the existence of Jesus doesn't prove that either way. <laughs> so much fun. Hey, Science Mike, I have a question about free will. Do we have it? Why did you choose to listen to this podcast? Could you have chosen otherwise? If I throw a ball at your face, do you choose to catch it? 
If a blast of air hits your face unexpectedly, do you choose to flinch? How about this? I just want you to pick up something nearby, anything close by that will fit in your hand. Go ahead and pick it up and hold it in your hand. Now I want you to choose that if you drop that object or let it go, that it will float in the air. Can you do it? Can you choose what you will think next? What did you think of? Why did you choose that? Could you have chosen to think of something else before you chose to think of that? We have reached a tar pit in philosophy and science, and that is human will and agency. (laughs) It is a mystery. It is confusing. Let's talk about some of the ideas in science. One, determinism. The universe is made of physical bits, right? A little quantum phenomenon. And they ping around and bounce off each other. And they form larger things like atoms and larger subatomic particles like protons. And then those bang around off each other. And all of this can be described by mathematics. And so theoretically, if you knew enough math and enough values, you could compute how everything would happen from the very beginning. You would need a computer larger than the universe to do that, but theoretically, in determinism, it's possible. Libertarianism, not to be confused with the political philosophy, is the idea that that's a bunch of bunk, that outcomes are not predetermined, and that humans can make free choices. That is very common in Religious thinking. The other view is compatibilism, that human free will can exist within a deterministic universe. That determinism and free will are compatible concepts. It's called compatibilism. Now, where do I stand? <laughs> it depends on the day and how much I've had to drink. Um, first of all, pure determinism may face challenges at the quantum level, right? The unpredictable and poorly understood mechanism of quantum mechanics may or may not completely sweep the rug out from under determinism at a quantum level. And the sheer immense volume of atomic and molecular interactions in any system may forever be beyond bounds of computation. So, No matter what we decide theoretically, we may never be able to test it. So this is not a problem we're necessarily close to solving. And it's interesting to me how the members of each camp express such confidence in their respective viewpoints. Well, I guess it shouldn't surprise me. We are humans with human brains. But um, it's still weird people are so certain about it. Free will is pretty essential to religious ideas because evil can become a result of human free will and relieves God from that obligation, although there are arguments against that, like an all-knowing God would be responsible for such decisions. Salvation also requires free will, the ability to choose or reject God. Now, this quantum idea may or may not undermine physical determinism, but it doesn't really help us out at the human scale. And to think about that, who is shoving who? You're thinking things, and As you're thinking things, neurons are firing. Are the neurons firing because you're thinking? Are you thinking because the neurons fire? What are you going to think next? You can't predict it. You have no idea. Your thoughts 
Although you feel like you're choosing to think them, they really emerge from some place that you don't understand. Here's a quote from a guy named Sam Harris, who's a neuroscientist, and he wrote a book called Free Will that I'll link to in the show notes uh, on AskScienceMike.com. And he says, The distinction between higher and lower systems in the brain offer no relief. I, as the conscious witness of my experience, no more initiate events in my prefrontal cortex than I cause my heart to beat. There will always be some delay between the first neurophysical events that I kindle in my next conscious thought and the thought itself. And even if there weren't, even if all mental states were truly coincident with their underlying brain states, I cannot decide what I will think next or intend until a thought or intention arises. What will my next mental state be? I do not know. It just happens. Where is the freedom in that? To support his thesis, Sam Harris offers many pieces of evidence, but one of those is that fMRI scans can predict human decisions and movements before our conscious minds are aware of it. Milliseconds or in some uh, more advanced decision-making processes, whole seconds before we're aware a conscious decision has been made, we can scan the brain and watch the machinery do its thing. And that seems hopeless for free will, right? <laughs> if uh, long before we make decisions, our brains make decisions for us, then our consciousness is just a wagon being pulled by a deterministic horse. And, you know, uh, you do so many things unconsciously. You don't choose for your heart to beat. You don't choose to make red blood cells. If I flick a pencil across the table, you don't choose to slap your hand down and stop it. All those things are happening in the lower brain, and those are part of you, right? It's still you, but you're not expressing your will in order to do it, if you even have it. And this whole idea of thought, neurons pushing thoughts, it seems impossible to overcome. But think about it this way. What else besides your brain would you want making decisions where else would your decisions come from? Where else would your consciousness reside? You know, uh, I think about a clock and it's full of gears. Those gears don't make time meaningless. They're just the mechanism by which the hands of the clock move. So all those billions of neurons in your head are responding to an absolutely unfathomable number of photons that are entering your eyes and immense, immeasurable vibrations that... I get uh, measured by your ears and um, countless electrical impulses that come through your nerves telling you you've been touched. But out of that emerges you. The atoms, molecules, neurons, and networks form your thoughts, but your thoughts turn around and drive changes the other way. So on some level, we're looking at the same phenomena at different levels. Looking from the top down, our thoughts are real. Looking from the bottom up, they have physical explanations. Either way, human choices matter. They have consequences. Whether or not they're predetermined in a deterministic system, the choices you make have absolutely profound power to shape the world and how you can help or hurt others. Now, your agency is constrained. You can't choose to believe things that you've never heard anything about, or you can't choose to believe things that go against your natural experiences. If uh, you have 
genetic or neurological predispositions or disabilities. You can't overcome those through your will. In matters of justice, we should always consider the limits on human agency and the fact that we'd never have truly unconstrained will. Capital punishment is likely immoral, so we should rehabilitate people, and failing the ability to rehabilitate them, we should simply isolate them to protect other people. But in matters of love, we should always embrace our power to make choices and our ability to have will. We should choose to forgive, we should choose to offer grace, and we should choose to stand up for the weak and oppressed. Whether we have truly free will or not, we experience agency and we experience making choices. And I would challenge you to make the best choices you can make and offer yourself grace when you let yourself down. Our next question comes via email and continues to explore these themes of will. Here's the question. A couple of years ago, I heard an NPR story about James Fallon, the author of The Psychopath Inside. James is a neuroscientist who discovered that he had both low activity in certain areas of the frontal and temporal lobes linked to empathy, morality, and self-control, as well as the genetic makeup of a psychopath. What is fascinating is that he attributes the fact that he is not a murderer or rapist, although inclined to aggressive behavior, to his loving childhood. I was loved and that protected me, he says. He mentions that once he realized this, he also tried to improve his behavior. What implications does this research have on the theology of original sin or brokenness or hardwired for struggle or no longer the innocent babes we were, whichever you prefer? And the theology of soterology, how we are saved from that darkness by our own free will, our community, and Jesus. Sincerely, Jen from Orlando, Florida. Jen, with a thoughtful and interesting question. Uh, for those of you who aren't theology geeks in the audience, um, and given our broad coalition of skeptics and religious folk, I suspect some have never heard the term. Soterology is the study of how we are saved. You know, different religions have different salvation doctrines. But even in the big tent of Christianity, there is not agreement over how salvation happens specifically, and that's one of the big drivers of denominational splits. That's the reason we have so many variations of Christianity. In America, two views are more common than others. One would be Calvinism, and the other would be Arminianism, although American Catholics are rolling their eyes right now because they don't subscribe to either. And as we learned in the last question, we may or may not actually have free will. And whether we have free will or not, our agency does have constraints. In American religion and, frankly, all of Western culture, individualism is overplayed, I think, in justice and in our behavior. Because science is teaching us our behavior is shaped by nature and nurture both have a dramatic influence on who we are. And James Fallon is a perfect example. He's a healthy psychopath. 
But what about someone who has the neurological makeup of a psychopath and grows up in an attention-starved or abusive environment? How responsible are they for their actions? How responsible are you for your actions? Do you want to live a healthy life? Do you want to do good things? Are there things in your life that you want to do but don't? Well, why would anyone choose to do things they don't want to do? And that is because we are not some single, neat machine. We are a complex, messy, conflicted, electrochemical storm. Different parts of your brain disagree with each other all the time. And your consciousness presents this to you as a narrative in which you are in complete control, right? I'm fascinated by an ongoing conversation, or it might be more of a debate, between secularists and progressive Christians on the internet over the term brokenness. Secularists often argue that people shouldn't use the term brokenness at all because there is nothing fundamentally broken about humanity, and it echoes of, a, of an idea in Calvinism called total depravity, the idea that humans are so wicked that they are completely beyond redemption. And secularists go, ridiculous. <laughs> uh, humanity is capable of great things, and humanity is capable of great things. But to say that we are not broken in any way, I don't think reflects science. Just look at the ecosystem. Look at the mass die-off of species that's happening right now and the way humans exploit the earth. Look at our cultures and the way nations treat each other and the wars that we fight. When the Bible speaks about a sin nature, it is talking about a very real, very measurable tendency in humans to do things that are selfish and short-sighted. So, if we want to talk about soteriology or how we are saved, these days I find myself most comfortable with the ideas in the Eastern Church, the church that even thinks uh, the Roman Catholic Church are a bunch of crazy modernists. (laughs) When they talk about salvation, they talk about sickness and healing. They talk about being drawn to God, seeking to become holy as we compare ourselves to God's light. I honestly think at this point, science really challenges a lot of the theological ideas in Calvinism, even Arminianism. But this idea in the ancient church of Christ healing a broken world, of Christ showing a better way, of Christ revealing how to have victory over death, through the process of resurrection, is both immensely peaceful and reflects an understanding of how humanity works in science today. Christ came to heal a broken world. God sent Christ to heal a broken world. That's where I'm at today. (laughs) My answer, of course, may change tomorrow. I'll have some links uh, in this answer for sure uh, to the different views of salvation and soteriology, but I'll also link to a TED Talk 
um, by Dr. Fallon because it's a fascinating story and something I think is worth contemplating. Our last question came from Twitter when Kristen Dawn asked, could you share your thoughts on the law of attraction? Not exactly a science question, but I'm curious. Well, Kristen, I think that's totally a science question. (laughs) Um, But that might be why they call me Science Mike. The law of attraction for anyone unfamiliar is most recently popularized by a book called The Secret. And the idea is like attracts like. So if you think positive things, positive things will happen to you. If you think negative things, negative things will happen to you. And the thesis behind that idea is that everything, including our thoughts, is pure energy. And this is a, a funny to me because uh, metaphysics and the New Age movement and physics and science have different understandings of what energy is. Technically, yes, everything is energy. Matter is composed of the same stuff that energy is, and Einstein figured that out and proved it to our satisfaction with the theory of relativity. Relativity is pretty darn good. It's it stood the test of time quite well. Practically, the idea that your thoughts somehow are transmitted out of your skull through energy and influence the universe is on very shaky ground scientifically. There's not really any evidence whatsoever to support that. Uh, But The Secret sold a lot of copies, and a lot of people are thrilled with the law of attraction. In fact, some Christian leaders even incorporate ideas from that movement into their teaching. Prosperity gospel uh, would be one way of adapting The Secret to a Christian context. So why does this seem to work? Well, science does have an answer. The way we view the world affects our behaviors and our emotional states. That's documented. Okay, that's been tested. Our behavior, the things we do, does affect the outcome of what happens to us, right? And our emotional states affect how we judge outcomes if we decide this was a positive or negative turn. So if you believe like attracts like, and that encourages you to think positively, it means you would believe that you have a greater chance of success. You'll believe you're going to succeed. It's going to make you determined, and it's going to make you take action. If that happens, you're going to make more efforts to succeed, which is going to what? Increase the probability that you will succeed. And because you have this positive emotional state, whenever your efforts get any traction, you're going to view that as validation that positive things are happening and attracted to your thoughts. So I don't put any stock in the idea that our thoughts magically or mystically influence the world through the power of positive thinking. But I do think the power of positive thinking has been shown in studies to influence human behavior. And human behavior will make those changes in your life. So there's nothing wrong with thinking positive and maintaining a positive outlook on life. It has been shown to make you happier. 
Well, that does it for another week of Ask Science Mike, and I hope you enjoyed this one. I felt more constrained than ever by the length of time I have to answer those questions. Three of those questions could have easily been 30-minute answers on their own. But, you know, um, you're going to have more ability to dig in on AskScienceMike.com. I'll have links for more information there. And listen, we need your questions to keep the show going. And this is especially true for women. We have a lot of female listeners. <laughs> you guys respond to me on social media. Record questions. Let's get some he for she for science. Uh, this is not a boys club. Now to ask questions, you can use hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. And if that's too technically complex, folks, no big deal. Just go to AskScienceMike.com where you can submit a question by typing it out and filling out a form, which is a great way to do anonymous questions. Or I've actually got a thing on the site where you can hit a record button and actually do a recorded question with no extra software and no posting or tagging or anything. Come straight to me. I also want to let you know that we're on Stitcher now. Um, so if you are not an iPhone user, or even if you are an iPhone user and just like Stitcher, you can hear the show. Um, we also have better RSS support than we've had before. You can now go to feedpress.me slash Ask Science Mike to subscribe to the program in absolutely any RSS reader or podcast player. And I also want to let you know Ask Science Mike is listener supported. So you can help create these conversations about science and faith. My patrons picked the questions this week and last week. A couple of people even got to make sure their questions were included because they kicked into the show. Absolutely every dollar helps. Just go to AskScienceMike.com for more information, and you can even listen to the show before anybody else. Ask Science Mike is produced by Greg Nordine, and our theme song is by Jeb Bodiford. If you've got a podcast and need original music, Jeb is your guy. Both Greg and Jeb are linked in the show notes at AskScienceMike.com. And thanks for listening, and I can't wait to see you next week. 